Welcome to Leveling Up, where you'll learn from leading experts in talent development and explore how leaders in some of the world's most successful businesses approach employee development, manager training, and more. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also listen on our website at levelingup.co. Welcome back to Leveling Up. Today, I have with me a very special guest. Her name is Julie Kenke. And Julie has made her career really in professional development. She's going to tell us all about it. She has more than 20 years of experience working as a community educator, a youth developer, a leader in change management, and so much more, as we'll get into. Um, Julie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I'd love for you to give me a little bit of background. Um, we're going to get into to collaborative leadership and why it's important. And, and I do think that this is an important topic for all of our listeners. We have people who are coming to us from um, as interns, people who are new managers, experienced managers, all the way up to senior vice presidents trying to really refine their professional development strategy, what skills they need to acquire, what, what frameworks they need to get better at using and so on. Um, and collaborative leadership was interesting to me because as you and I talked about it, you mentioned how it's really focused on um, being a leader regardless of your title or your role. And so I'm excited to dive into that. But before we do, I'd love if you could walk me through your your background, your career, how you, you ended up where you are today. Sure. Um, yeah, I can share a little bit. I, um, I've spent the past about 20 years, 20 plus years in the field of and a youth work, public education, community education. Um, and in terms of sort of a formal path, uh, I actually started as an art major in college, but it was through uh, experiences that I had outside of the classroom that I really got interested in education. I'm the daughter of a public school teacher and of a, a, my dad's vocational counselor. So in some ways our table conversations are always focused on um, you know, my dad was always asking my brother and I what we wanted to be when we grew up, what we were interested in. I think I took my first Myers-Briggs test at the age of 12. So that sort of sense of future and <laughs> thinking about what I wanted to be and uh, thinking about vocational education was something that was inherent in our family. And my mother being an educator, um, and she tutored students with reading disabilities out of our home. And so um, that was just kind of in the water of how I grew up. So it's probably not too surprising that I ended up in education, though I'll say that I um, spent the bulk of my adolescence and young adulthood and college fighting uh, that I didn't want to go into education. Uh, but I, I really started working in collaborative groups in college and um, as a youth worker um, and slowly started to see the power of being a part of a really effective group and how an effective group could kind of transcend uh, poor leadership. Um, and then I really could see how in education and in youth work and in community organizing, that it really is the power of the community, the power of the classroom, the power of students that really can make change. And so that, that really contributed to my interest in collaborative leadership. Then working with young people uh, and seeing the direct impact that I could have on helping through my own experiences, helping young people think differently about their lives, and then seeing how I could work with others to create and organize and change systems that really could change outcomes for young people was also really impactful. And so all of that sort of hooked me into what has been a surprising career in public education and community education. So much of this really ties back to um, change management within you know, traditional 
private organizations, right? It's mm-hmm. when you talk about the power of youth and the power of community, the power of um, the classroom and students coming together and, and really imp- impacting that change. It, it's very much team dynamics. How do you get an entire team of people to come together and move in the same direction? Um, how has that experience shaped what you're doing today? Working That's a with- great question. Yeah. Um, I worked for, um, a camp early on in my twenties as you know, lots of folks spend their summers in a camp counselor role. And the particular camp I worked at, um, a woman by the name of Lori Frank, who's an outstanding educator, um, really worked with our camp to develop what she called the collaborative uh, leadership framework. And I think it was being a part um, of those types of teams where we were really intentional and conscientious about building a shared vision together, about distributing leadership. Um, And we really saw one another as equals versus somebody having power over somebody else, that it was my introduction to seeing that there was a different way of working than perhaps the traditional systems that I had experienced. Um, And I think when I just experienced that I felt differently in those systems, that I felt valued, that I felt like I had something to contribute, and I actually could see myself performing at a higher level, um, that really sort of hooked me into that there's a power to learning about collaboration. And then I was really fortunate to experience lots of leaders who fostered uh, collaboration, Um, you know, teachers that fostered that in the classroom or... um, supervisors that fostered it. And so I just wanted to grow up to be like them. Um, and that's, that's sort of what I've emulated. It's really interesting. It feels like in some ways uh, that collaborative leadership framework helped you become more confident even as a professional. If you're saying it became, you felt like it was having an impact on, on your um, development at a young age. Did it impact your confidence? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that the you know, the traditional mode of how we think about leadership is didactic and autocratic with the leader sort of positioned as the hero um, and the leader of folks. Um, if that's our view of leadership, that really only benefits a select few people. Um, and in today's society, that really um, uh, benefits a certain um a certain population of people, of folks that um, are comfortable speaking out loud, uh, folks who have a traditional, you know, um, role authority or position based on their race, their gender, their class, um, and it leaves out a lot of folks. And as a as a young woman um, who was trying to figure out my sexual orientation, I think there was lots of ways I didn't have confidence, and I wasn't sure how to assert my own opinions um, in those traditional hierarchy roles. And when I was in a place where um, it was expected that I had something to contribute, it certainly changed how I viewed myself and it changed how I showed up in that group without doubt. Thanks so much for all of this. Like being able to talk through those early formative experiences with with other leaders who have come through. And I I couldn't agree more with you that um, sometimes we get into this mindset of leadership being the loudest person in the room or the person who's, you know, appears most confident and, um, I've been also fortunate to have great leaders who don't fall into that category. So excited to talk more about it. Um, before we jump off of this, I want to dig deeper into your experience. So um, you were at ConnectEd. Is that how I say it? ConnectEd? Yeah, I work at, uh, for ConnectEd, uh, the yeah. National Center for College and Career, which is based out of Berkeley and yeah, yeah. Um, on the East Coast and, and service our East, East Coast sites. 
And and how did you end up at Connected? Like, where are you, you know, what was your path there? Yeah, um, sort of a circuitous path from uh, as many of us have. Um, I spent the last um, 17 years of my uh, life living in Madison, Wisconsin, um, and working for the Madison School District in a variety of positions. I uh, started as a as a youth worker and moved into sort of a supervisory position and then moved into um, school district central office administration overseeing um, a college and career readiness um, program, as well as a variety of high school reform and improvement efforts. Um, and in about year 17 of my career, um, my wife wanted to uh, move a little bit closer to her family and um, we were we were at a point in our lives where if we were going to make some career shifts, that was the time that we needed to do it. Um, and I had been working with Connected and Madison. Um, they had been a support agency for us as we were developing college and career pathways. And I did some consulting work for them. And I just was very impressed by the organization in terms of the thought leadership around education, the way they worked with communities rather than um, rather than coming in and trying to do things to communities um, and really uh, the way the whole organization and, and the colleagues were. And so fortunately a year and a half, about a year ago, year and a half ago, I um, was offered a full-time position and uh, now work with them full-time and really enjoy them as an organization and I'm really proud to be a part of it. And so now you are um, sitting here with me talking about collaborative leadership. Um, <laughs> So can you tee us up here? What What is collaborative leadership and why should our listeners be paying attention? Yeah, you know, I think that there, if you were to go Google collaborative leadership, you could find all sorts of good things and all sorts of writing about collaborative leadership. For me, the kind of definition that I subscribe to and what collaborative consists of is it's really about shifting from this sort of traditional hierarchy where the leader holds the vision, carries the vision, and pushes the vision to where collectively as a team, you build a joint vision. Uh, that, that to me is the best way to, to do it. And that you've organized your organization in a way that supports collaborative building of a vision and a collaborative implementation of a vision across all levels of your, of your system and your organization. And I think there's some key components to it, which is that you're focused on at times uh, building the vision together, that at times the leader leads and at other times the leader is the follower. I think it's about developing systems, processes, and structures where all voices can be heard. And instead of communication being didactic from the top down and the top says what needs to happen and the folks on the bottom of the hierarchy implement it, that it's informed through continuous improvement. And so that at all levels of the organization, there's opportunity for feedback, there's opportunity to try things out and to fail and to to inform what happens. So that's a, a large cursory overview of how I think about collaborative leadership. That's really helpful. And it begs the question then, because your experience is very much in change management as well. And I, I'm imagining an organization that desperately needs something like this. And here, you know, our listener being somebody working in that type of organization, what are those processes that you mentioned, these systems? How do you implement them when they don't exist? You know, I know that's a loaded question because it's like, where do you even start? But yeah, any any tips for somebody who's thinking, goodness, this sounds exactly what we need, but yeah, right. Yeah. So I think I'd just start first at the personal level, which is that all of us are in different positions um, within an organization. And probably most of us are somewhere in the middle of the organization that are listening to your podcast, relatively new into a field. And so it can feel 
overwhelming to think, well, my boss doesn't work in this way, so how can I possibly work in a, in a collaborative manner? And so I'll, I'll try and tackle that maybe, maybe first. I think that to work in a collaborative manner requires some things as, of you as an individual. It certainly has pushed me as I've learned more and more. I think the field of public education done a lot of research on what it means and what adult collaboration looks like and what's impactful. And in fact, much of the research in public education actually points to that there is a direct correlation between how how strong and collaborative the adult relationships are in a building or in a school to the types of outcomes that students in that school experience. In other words, the better and stronger the collaborative relationships are um, amongst adults, the better student achievement um, gains. And I think that happens in a variety of ways. And it starts first with how you show up in the places where you work with other adults. And if you're the type of person who's critiquing without offering solutions, if you're the type of person that is coming up with your ideas and insisting that everybody follow them in a, in a non-collaborative way, then that's setting a different type of tone. Uh, so if you can show up in a space and first off, be a deep listener in your work environment and work on a skill of listening and paraphrasing to really understand what your colleagues are about, what they're trying to say, what their concerns, their fears, and their disappointments are, as well as what they're excited about as you do work, that's a really great first micro step. If you can get a better understanding of who you work with, what motivates them, where they are struggling, you can be do a better job of being in service of your of your colleagues. I think another small micro step that all of us can take is that we've all been in really ineffective meetings where there's not a clear outcome. And then we have the meeting after the meeting where we all complain about the meeting. And I think part of collaborative leadership is being courageous. So in that meeting, when it's going sideways or when the purpose is unclear, to ask a simple question of the facilitator, like, I'm sorry, can you clarify what the, what the purpose of this meeting is or what are outcomes of this meeting? It's a simple question that can change the entire flow of an entire meeting with someone saying, oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't clarify that. Or I'm actually not clear. Actually... Maybe we don't need to have the meeting. Let's come back once we're cleared. I've certainly had that experience happen. So those are two really micro steps. Asking some naive questions, listening and paraphrasing can help support a culture of collaboration at the individual level, pushing out and influencing the culture. It's really interesting. And we've all been in those meetings. <laughs> yeah, like having that meeting. And, and you, you talked a little bit about the role of that individual to come in and be a better listener. And active listening is something that a lot of our members come to us not realizing that they need to focus on, but then it becomes a top priority. Being able to be a great listener is something I think we can take for granted, right? We assume we're a good listener because we hear. Do you have any tips on how to be a stronger active listener? I was super fortunate many years ago to experience the work of Bob Garmston, who's written a lot about this idea of being a productive listener and um, running effective meetings, particularly in the context of education. He's written a, a book called Adaptive Schools and has a whole body of work around collabor collaborative um, uh, work. But uh, I think a couple of key things that 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 I took away from, from Mr. Garmston's work is that it starts first with your intent. If you're sitting in a meeting and listening to your colleagues and trying to figure out what you're going to say in response to them versus actually sitting and listening and then responding, that's the very first step. I think when I heard that idea of, oh man, most of the time I'm in a meeting, I'm constantly thinking about what I'm going to say versus actually tending to what is being said is a really good first step. 
a second good step is getting masterful at the skill of paraphrasing, which lots of people don't like the skill of paraphrasing because it it has they've experienced it where the person has said their words back directly to them and sort of parroted and that's just annoying. Or the person inserts themselves by saying, well, what I think you're hearing. And when we all roll our eyes when we when we hear that. Uh, but paraphrasing can really be done in three ways. You can just share back to the person. So it sounds like you're really upset about this decision. You know, you're not, you're not parroting back the words. You're just mirroring back to them what their emotions are and mirroring back to them maybe just a, a bulleted point that they make so that that person knows that they've been heard. Um, that can minimize all sorts of other behaviors that when we don't feel heard, we sort of start performing in other negative ways. Another way that you can paraphrase in a, in a meeting is to actually uh, organize and categorize what's being said. Uh, you can say, well, it sounds like there's a tension in the room. Uh, on one hand, we have uh, folks who believe this. On the other hand, we have folks who believe that. And then you can throw in a question, how might we move, how might, how might we move forward given this tension? Um, that can also change the overall dynamic of a room. But that's uh, not you inserting uh, your ideas, uh, but rather listening intently to the group and trying to capture that. And then a third, uh, a third way that we can be better listeners and paraphrasers is to actually abstract uh, what we're hearing, which is that if people are talking in the weeds of work, you can actually try and try and capture what the details are connected to in terms of bigger, um, bigger ideas. So it sounds like uh, you're really concerned about how we structure registration because you are concerned people won't feel welcome when they come to our event. Or you can kind of abstract and shift the abstraction down to more details. So people are talking about in the planning of an event, well, we want people to feel really welcomed, but no one can get to the details of what the registration process is going to look like and you're going nuts in the meeting. You can say, well, it sounds like we all agree that we want people to feel really welcome, but what would that look like from the minute the person walks in the room? So I think, you know, you can couple listening and paraphrasing and questions in a way that can really deepen and change the collaborative culture in a room. In that meeting dynamic that you just described, and I want to talk about meetings more a little bit later, but in this specific dynamic, um, if you're not the facilitator, do you find it appropriate for that person to still speak up and, and be the, the voice of reason to get things back on track? Yeah, absolutely. I think we, Margaret Wheatley has a great article about leaders as hero or host. We often put some false promise in the idea of facilitator or leader as ultimately our savior. I think all the research around groups really points to that. A facilitator has a specific role and an important role to play in a group. Uh, but the most important and the most telling piece is actually how skillful are the group members within a group. Um, and so being quiet and letting the facilitator or letting the team go down a path that you can see is going to result in really negative um, or ineffective practices, I think is actually a little bit of professional malpractice on our end. Um, so I think it's important to, to ask naive questions, to do it in a way that's respectful, to, to paraphrase and to make sure you're listening and hearing your colleagues. Um, I think that's, that's actually the responsibility we have as group members or team members in whatever capacity we're in. I love working with those people who are just excellent paraphrasers. I, thanks for breaking those down into different frameworks. I, it's a superpower. It really is. And when you work with somebody and you're like, yes, you just said it three times better than I could have. Thank you. When it's that environment where you feel trust, like there's a lot of trust there and you know that this person has good intentions and is paraphrasing in order to make sure that the two of you are aligned is 
really important. And sometimes when that paraphrasing happens and it ends up with a negative outcome, it re- it's based more on trust, right? Um, they don't trust that this person paraphrasing has their best interest or is feeling like positive will is, is there in between them. I'd love to, to move on to your thoughts around the difference between leadership and management. And I'd like to wrap up at the end with, with a little bit more about meetings because I think we can um, dig into where people have opportunities to, to lead. But before we do that, this idea of like leaders versus managers gets pretty muddled. And you mentioned earlier, leaders are um, often misinterpreted as the person who's the loudest in the room and, and not necessarily how we're defining collaborative leadership. But what about a people manager? Even if they have a democratic style of managing their team, is that collaborative leadership? Is it just them still managing? Where do you separate these? You know, I'm not a, a leadership and management expert, I wouldn't say. So, you know, I, I think that that in the traditional hierarchy, the way we have historically viewed leadership is that the leader, however we determine that, the CEO, the president sort of sets the vision and the managers are responsible for the operationalizing, um, the, the day-to-day management of that vision and making sure it takes hold. And I think you can do it in a way that um, is compliance, you know, where you have your list of tasks and you just are on your staff um, to manage those tasks and be in compliance to those tasks. Um, that, that's the way I think of management as sort of someone that's just about managing daily tasks or implementing tasks. But I, I think that you can have a manager who has a democratic style, and I think you can be a manager with a democratic style, and I would call that collaborative leadership. I think that leadership is not just at the top level of an organization. I think leadership is whenever you're working and have some sort of role authority or influencing role with others. And I think that's, you can have, I've certainly worked in schools and seen folks that we would traditionally think of as not leaders, such as custodians, have a huge leadership role within a building. Um, so I, I think that we got to just given the way our society is moving and changing, we have to break out of this notion that leadership is top down and that there's only a few people that are leaders and that the rest of us sort of follow along. I think we all have to view ourselves in some ways as having leadership and influence, but that's just sort of a personal viewpoint I hold. Yeah. But how do we do it? Tell us, Julie, how do we, how do we <laughs> become that, you know, person that um, walks into the room and, and feels confident enough to speak up in those moments that you mentioned? Like, I think it's one thing to know that you should, and a yep. whole different thing to find that courage to say, I'm not going to sit through another meeting that's not focused on some outcome. Yeah, and I think what you're talking about is courage. And um, that perhaps is, I think, what is scary about the time that we live in for a lot of folks. And we might might be drifting off in a, maybe a little different topic. But I, I think that if you have a desire to see the, the meeting, your team, uh, the way you organize your day a little better, the courage is you have to take that first step. What has been effective and useful for me in those moments when I feel like just even the most micro step of throwing out a paraphrase to a group or asking a naive question feels daunting. I think the first step is to develop a small cadre of people that you can go to, if that's a coach, a friend, uh, another like-minded colleague. Um, I used to have a colleague that would sit in a meeting with me, and I would ask her to count the number of paraphrases I offered in a meeting. And we would actually debrief our behaviors because we were trying to be more skillful as a team member. And so it's, it's some of those really micro steps that sound super nerdy, but I think that's the first step 
is you have to take some action. You have to be courageous and you have to be willing to, to flail a little bit. You might ask a question and it might not go well. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't try it again the next time. Uh, the question is, what did you learn? What, how could you phrase the question different? What was, what was the end result? I find that for the most part, most of us aren't courageous because we're really concerned about how we're going to be perceived. And for the most part, most people aren't thinking about us as much as we are thinking about ourselves. I don't know if that's as helpful as you want, but that's for me the first starting point. It's about kind of our own personal growth and our own personal ego checks and our own uh, personal courage. That personal courage is incredibly powerful. Yes, this is helpful. I think that there's always that moment in our careers where we feel like we know exactly what's supposed to happen. And man, we just don't know how to get there, right? We don't know how to take that hurdle or we, we see all the potential downsides. And it's an activity I do with a lot of my clients because I'm like, what is the worst thing that will happen here? You, exactly. Somebody's thinking that you're a little silly. That's fine. You'll yeah. next time and they'll make a silly mistake too. So yeah. I also think that it's that as we think about our careers in this day and age, I think the, the leaders and the mentors that have been most impactful for me have been the ones that have encouraged me not to be linear in my thinking um, and to take advantage of the opportunities. So not to be set that by the age of a, by a certain age that I have a certain income or a certain, a certain job title, but rather to really focus on what's the impact that I have of my work. And once I sort of let go of a specific career trajectory and started to think about what is the impact I want to have and accepting work based on how interesting um, I thought the work was. I saw a radical shift just in myself and my own kind of sense of joy over going to work. Joy of going to work. We we should all feel joy at least some days, maybe not on a yes. rainy Tuesday yeah. day. I mean, uh, you know, I think, you know, I, for me, work is a, isn't just about uh, sort of bringing home a paycheck and being able to buy stuff. And I, I know it is for some folks. For me, it is not. It's really about what's the type of life I want to design for myself and how do I want to be of service to the society and the community in which I live. And if I align what I do for eight, nine, 10, 12 hours a day to that question, um, you kind of land on some different things. And, and then being a part of a collaborative group is, is much easier because you're working towards a common goal that you feel committed to versus uh, doing something just because you're motivated by the paycheck at the end of it. So using your values to really drive that that career that you you want yeah excellent paraphrase uh, <laughs> working on it practicing uh, we talked a little bit about meetings earlier but i wanted to just spend another minute on it because it's such a big part of this you mentioned that in a meeting you have you have all these different frameworks you can use what can you do to be a powerful attendee in a meeting yeah that's a great question i guess a couple thoughts i think that there's um again i referenced bob garmston's work earlier but he has a, what he considers five kind of key meeting standards. And that's that in every meeting that you're dealing with one topic at a time, um, that you're dealing with one process at a time. We've all been in meetings where somebody says something which drives another comment, which drives another comment, which ends up with people talking about where they had dinner the night before. And so he really talks about having one topic at a time, utilizing one process at a time, developing meetings that are interactive and have balanced participation, engage in cognitive versus effective conflict and understanding and agreeing on meeting roles. So I think prior to even walking into a meeting, we've all, we've all done this, and I do this all the time, is that you, you haven't looked at the agenda uh, prior to even walking in the meeting. So you're unprepared um, and unaware of what's even being asked for you. So you know, spending 10 minutes uh, prior to a meeting to sort of get yourself about you and to look at what that agenda is going to be 
is an important kind of preparation step. I think being clear, not just about the group's intent, but maybe your own intent walking into a meeting, especially if you know it's a meeting where you're going to get really triggered. Um, And you know, it brings out like the dynamics of the group, just bring out your worst behavior, setting a meeting, you know, setting a personal goal about like, I'm going to remain calm, or I'm not going to engage with this person in an effective way, or I'm really going to try and listen to this colleague who I really struggle with. I'm really going to try and listen and understand what they have to say. It can be um, helpful for getting you into the right mindset for walking into a meeting. And then I think, you know, there's some really, again, it's, it's through questioning, which I think is the best way to really um, sit on the side, but you know, as the meeting commentary goes off topic, you know, just asking a question of like, can you help me understand how this leads to this topic, or can we come back to the topic at hand and talk about that at a later time? Um, that can be really key. If you feel like you've been talking a lot, to have enough awareness to do that. But if you know you haven't heard from other people at the table, to just say, you know, I haven't. I I'm curious what so and you know what so and so thinks about this particular topic, just to try and bridge out and bring out that um, balanced participation. And then I think for the most part, it's really monitoring ourselves. There's so many times when you've put an idea out on the table, people start to critique it and you feel yourself taking that personal and you go into your own negative uh, loop in your head about, oh, they think I'm stupid or they don't think this is a good idea. Um, And that might not be the case. People are just maybe critiquing the idea and trying to make it better. And so trying to get aware of my own kind of emotions in the middle of a meeting Um, so that I can better self-regulate myself. That self-awareness is the toughest, especially when emotions are like, you've been triggered. There's something that happens every single meeting. You try to avoid it and yet it still happens. Um, We've all been there. And I think it's helpful to just to be able to talk about it, right? To be able to talk about like, yes, you know that these are going to happen. So what can you, what can you do to avoid it? Uh, That was for me the most disappointing thing when I learned, when I kind of learned more about meetings and the importance of a group member to realize that, uh, what was most important was my own self-awareness. That was a little disappointing because <laughs> it's a lot easier to put it on somebody else. You want to fix everybody else instead. No, I hear you. And and that that self-awareness is also the power that gives you the confidence, right? When you, when you get to a point where you're self-aware of what triggers you and you can start to be aware of, um, yes, I'm absolutely right that I need to speak up and say, hey, what's the agenda? You didn't send out an yep. agenda. And, or, hey, we had an agenda and we are nowhere near it. What's going yep. on? Yeah. Um, you work a lot with students. And one of the things that we notice as, as an organization working with um, experienced professionals, most of our members are anywhere from five years to 30 years of work experience. Um, but as you work with students, I, I wanted to just kind of shift gears here and talk more about what, um, what we're doing to prepare students for the workforce, um, specifically in this collaborative leadership context too, but, and and what we're not doing, like what, what do we need to be doing? Um, Because as they get into the workforce, their employers are really expecting them to be at a certain level. And, you know, that's, there's a big misalignment over whose job it is to ensure that professionals do have the skills they need to be strong leaders and have the skills they need to be great communicators, great meeting facilitators, right? Project managers. Mm -hmm. Um, Who's, whose job is it and, and what can we do differently? Yeah, uh, well, whose job it is, I think um, it's everybody's job. And I think it's the K-12 educator, it's the local business and um, industry leaders in a community, it's the Workforce Development Board, it's the two- and four-year post-secondary education institutions. The work I do at, at ConnectEd um, is really around this idea of developing what we call college and career pathways. You know, the old school model of high school, at least what I grew up in, and I think many people have grown up in, was this bifurcated system where 
at an early age, certain kids were selected to go into post sec or to go to post secondary, typically four year college, and other kids were tracked into the world of work. You know, that goes back to sort of Thomas Jefferson's vision of education in our country. Um, that, that's outdated. And I think, you know, you can look at the future of work and you can see the role of automation and you can see um, what we need now is instead of, at least in the community that I grew up in Wisconsin, which was folks working in um, manufacturing, um, that you need folks that now program uh, the computers that do the bulk of the manufacturing. Uh, so, you know, knowledge production, uh, knowledge attainment, skill attainment, uh, the world is ever diversifying, people that have a high level of emotional intelligence and the ability to critically think, um, you know, that's what employers tell us that we want. Um, and at the same time, sort of capturing, uh, we have an education system that is um, getting pushed further and further to toward sort of standardized testing um, and sort of uh, an autocratic way of seeing young people as uh, that are supposed to get dumped knowledge in and then regurgitate that knowledge based on a standardized test. And then we've uh, set up systems around our country um, to, to fund uh, where the funding is based on the standardized test, but the standardized test doesn't necessarily assess students' skills and knowledge and their ability to actually do uh, tasks. And we have to move in our education system towards a place where teachers and young people and business and industry and post-secondary folks are working together to co-design a curriculum um, and to um, assess student skills and uh, to, to do that. So that, you know, that's a big, that's a big lift to, to answer your question. But on a small way, I think in a local community, what we can do to better prepare uh, young people, and I think the role that business and industry can have is that I think um, folks that work in the private sector need to begin to engage with the public education sector um, in a whole variety of ways that exposes young people to the possibilities of work and career much earlier. Um, we need to, you know, in some ways, uh, engage middle school and high school students in things like not just career fairs, but field trips, job shadows, mentoring opportunities, internships, and integrating work-based learning into the, the school day experiences and setting up a system that encourages work-based learning um, within a school system uh, versus just sort of a sit and get kind of mode. I, I had a conversation the other day with somebody who's in their late career stages, has no desire to become, this isn't a client, this is a friend, but has no desire to become a, a manager, doesn't ever want to move up in their role. They are very happy in the role they have and they'd like to retire in that role. They have another 10 years until retirement. Yeah. And they have a lot of junior people coming in underneath them, hungry to climb the ranks, right? We're seeing this. Professionals coming in today want to learn, they want to grow, they want to move fast as they can. And, and one of the things that's happening, and I want your thoughts on this, is that the People that they're bringing in to run HR, run learning and development programs, et cetera, have instilled, installed this uh, lean feedback model, right? The idea that you have one-on-ones with your manager every every week or every other week, and you as an individual are meant to bring your your goals and what you're hoping to accomplish to that manager and be proactive in, in your own development. And, and we adopt that. We believe that you as an individual have a huge role to be taking the responsibility of your own development. But what happens when we have this, the skills that we didn't learn, right? None of us learned in school around self-awareness and emotional intelligence and confidence and the ability to communicate in the way that we, the ways that we've been discussing, really speaking up when things aren't going in the right direction. Um, those not, aren't necessarily instilled in every single person who's come before us. We're kind of getting this clash of like people are, if they are taught how to do these, how to approach these situations, they're 
working with people who weren't. And so you have like this weird dynamic of people saying like, our way's better, no, our way's better. I want your thoughts. So as you're sort of talking about the maybe a, a generational and cultural divide between you know, how, how young people have been sort of trained up to enter into the professional workforce and, and how they think about work versus, you know, those, those older, older folks who've been in a profession for a long way and are maybe more, more so maybe you might have young folks that are interested in this sort of collaborative leadership and you've got more senior level folks who've grown up in a traditional hierarchy. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, you, and you have that, you have that, that clash. Yeah, I think that's a, a cultural phenomenon. I actually think that's what you're seeing in our country um, play out as well as you, as you look at the differences between um, even the, the recent national election of the t- sort of senators that are up and coming and the use of social media versus sort of some of the, the traditional ways of campaigning. I think you can see the play out. I don't know that I have great advice on how to, how to, how to uh, deal with the, the cultural divide, but I think for me, it's always been, you know, if I'm trying to manage up, um, which is for those younger folks that are entering into the profession, um, it is it is key for you to understand what motivates your supervisor, um, understand what their parameters, what their willingness for collaboration is and isn't. Um, you know, I have had some bosses where I could go into their office and say, hey, you know, here's some feedback based on how that meeting went. Um, and they would want me to be frank and honest. But I had other uh, supervisors that, that that would be a no-go that, that would that would definitely not work and so I think it is having those conversations with your supervisor and again that can be um, daunting but I've always found it to be helpful to say to my supervisor you know how do you want me to work with you how do you want me if I have concerns how do I bring those bring those to you um, so I think it's first and foremost always being in the role of thinking that it's your responsibility even if somebody supervises you to manage up and to find out and to learn and to be genuinely curious about what your supervisor needs from you. Um, and then if you find out that what your supervisor needs from you doesn't align with your own integrity, ethics, and values, so that's a, that's a different question. But I think for the most part, it's um, trying to manage up as effectively as possible. And then I think on the, on the flip side, you know, if you're one of these, if you're a senior person, and I'm finding myself that with that way in some situations now, and, and realizing that um, I've got to be open too. And so it, it is a two-way conversation of me asking younger, uh, younger employees or folks, how do you, how do you want to work and how do we hold ourselves accountable? And if I've got feedback for you, how do you want me to offer that to you? Yeah. Really aligning that expectation to avoid unnecessary conflict. Um, yeah. so, so helpful. Thank you for humoring me to go into that side topic, yeah. because I think it is such an important part of, of what we're seeing today. And, um, to your point, I have some junior, uh, senators and congressmen out of, uh, well, mostly House of Representatives, right? Congressmen coming, congresswomen rather, coming out of Kansas and, and dealing with a lot of that right now, where right. people are telling them to just sit down and get out of the way. So yeah, yeah that conversation is really important. Um, yeah. We could ho- go whole conversation on on culture at the moment, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> for the sake of time, we are about out of time, but I wanted to ask you my favorite question, which is what are your go-to resources at the moment? And where are you finding your information these days? Yeah, um, some sort of standbys for me is as I, I do a lot of planning for professional learning, a lot of planning for meetings, there's three kind of active websites I go to on probably almost a daily basis is a website called Thinking Collaborative. You know, and to be honest, most of these are aimed at educators and folks who are in the professional learning space, but a website called Thinking Collaborative and looking at the materials under their adaptive schools work, which is really about structuring meetings and protocols and strategies. Um, another space, another website I go to is the School Reform Initiative, um, which has a ton, a ton of 
just practical hands-on uh, protocols for how to make a meeting interactive um, and how to, how to do things in a way that really does bring all voices to the table um, versus in a sort of standard way. And then um, one of my favorite all-time organizations that I've been lucky to have some affiliation with is the National Equity Project, um, which does a lot of work both with schools and systems around how to create more equitable um, societies. And they just have some great frameworks. Um, they have amazing trainings if you're a person that's interested in thinking about your own um, privilege and racial um, and implicit bias. Um, that's a great, a great organization. Um, and they just they have amazing trainings and amazing staff. Um, some of the go-to books, I love listening to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Um, that, that's always a, a great one, just the way he, he thinks differently and, and helps us think differently about what we know. Um, um, Margaret Wheatley's reading just around change management and change and transformation, um, I find inspiring. Um, and then recently I've been reading a lot of, a lot of books around uh, whiteness and um, uh, white privilege. Um, I found uh, Robin D'Angelo's most recent book, White Fragility, to be quite helpful. Um, and probably like most middle-class white women, I find uh, Brene's Brown a recent book on leadership to be quite helpful for me as well. Thank you. These are powerful. Um, I'm going to have to check out white fragility. This has been a topic of, of you know, a lot of conversations lately of how, how do we um, help here and, yeah. and what role do we have as, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, well, I can't recommend um, white fragility um, uh, enough. I think it's, it's a well-written book um, and, and Robin D'Angelo has a nice way of um, capturing the role and the responsibility and the power that, that we have as white folks to um, also work towards a more equitable society and to question ourselves and um, our own, what we, what we were taught and how we might replicate things that we uh, unintendedly mm-hmm. uh, don't want to replicate. Right. It's that self-awareness that we, yeah. you know, you don't know what you don't know. And so it's nice exactly. to have great, great resources like that. Exactly. Um, my final question is what advice would you give your, a younger version of yourself and, and what age, if you could go back into the past and give yourself advice um, to help you guide along the way, what age would you go back to and what advice would you give? I know it's uh, a that's a, uh, yeah, that's a great, great, great question. Um, you know, I think I would go back to myself probably in my early thirties was probably when I was struggling the most in my career, I was sort of into the world of public education, but I wasn't sure um, what sort of niche I was going to have within that. Um, and I think I probably a lot of the things that we've talked about here, just in terms of self-reflection, self-awareness, um, and being a bit more courageous. I think I I, I would have um, I would encourage my thirty-year-old self uh, to do that earlier in their career um, and and to to trust that I have something to say um, and that I didn't have to say it perfectly, um, that I could mess up a little bit more than I did. I just got goosebumps, literally. I don't know if it's because I'm freezing in San Francisco, but that that is really, really, no, really. I, I think hearing those words um, will certainly help somebody listening and, and thanks for sharing that. Yep. Julie Kanke, thanks for being here. Do you have resources? How can these people find you? Um, you know, if you go to the Connected, the National Center for College and Career, um, and you, you can find me on that on that website. Um, I will link to your bio and we'll have all that information freely available as well as links to all of these great resources. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a privilege and an uh, honor. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Head over to levelingup.co to join our newsletter and to find past episodes.